Hello, I'm your host, Anjana Kaushik Taluri, and this is the Stories of Feminine Science podcast. Hi, everyone. Today, I'm speaking with Christy Kramers, who's the founder of Change Agency, a leadership scholar and an author. My conversation with Christy covers a broad range of topics from the role and importance of emotional intelligence in our daily lives as students and scientists to becoming more mindful leaders to tips for dealing with imposter syndrome. We trace Christy's journey as a rock journalist at the young age of 16 interviewing musicians on tour buses to an undergrad living with Aboriginal tribes in Australia to pursuing her master's and PhD and to where she is today training the next generation of leaders. Christy has been teaching at colleges and universities for the past decade. Her primary research interests include emotional intelligence, ethics, neural leadership, applied mindfulness and leadership, and how organizations can adapt an anthropological approach to creating culture and community. Christy, thank you so much for being here today. It's so nice to have you on this podcast, and I'm excited for all the things that we're about to talk about today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to chat with you and see where the conversation takes us. Thank you. So I want to start with what is emotional intelligence and how does it affect the development of an individual? And for the purpose of this podcast, I'd like to focus on the impacts um, on the science student in the present day. Sure. So emotional intelligence was a term that was really coined in the early 1990s by Peter Selvey of Yale University and John D. Meyer of the University of New Hampshire. And so basically it's how do we assess with accuracy, that's the key, our own emotional state and the emotional states of others and how do we respond appropriately or inappropriately to those readings that we're getting. Um, And so it's basically the effective regulation of our emotions in ourselves. And then when we're working socially with others, being able to regulate our emotions and that we can go ahead in our lives and and plan and achieve and do all the things that we want to do. And I think for science students, uh, just like the rest of the population, Um, it's so important to the quality of our personal lives and our professional lives. And I think sometimes when we're in academia, we forget that there's in the Venn diagram of life, there's intersections of both and that our personal lives can impact our academic and professional lives and vice versa. And so there's sometimes a misconception in science that people are driven to that because they're not as emotional as other people and, and that sort of thing. But the, the truth is we're all emotional creatures. It's the extent to which we're willing to understand our own emotions and that of others um, that can really influence the trajectory of our careers. And so while we're studying in undergrad or graduate school, it may not be as critical to our success 
to navigate relationships and all these different things that relate to emotional um, intelligence, you can strictly focus on academics in a lot of ways and get pretty far, but there, there comes opportunities, especially when job searching and applying for grants, applying for external funding from investors later on in one's career that become really important to scientists uh, where the rubber hits the road. And that's where we want to make sure that people who are going into the scientific fields are getting that training to understand themselves and others, and that it's not just purely about the academics, because we want them to be able to take the visions and the innovation that they are tapping into and bring that out into the real world. Wow, that is very interesting, you know, sets of thoughts there. And I'd like to talk more about it as we go through the interview. I'd like to start with, you know, you mentioned how emotional intelligence plays a role in our lives. Um, so if you're willing, would you be able to give an example of something that influenced you early on, say in your childhood, that you were able to draw a parallel with later in your career? Yeah, it's really interesting that, you know, from the ages of zero to about 10, we kind of take on the world around us and take responsibility for it, no matter what's going on. There's not so much a separation of self at that point. Um, and this is partially attributed to brain development. And so a lot of brain development happens between the ages of 10 to 25 or 26, particularly with the hippocampus. And so when I was, and we were born for, with like 85 billion neurons, right? Um, and that's the most we're gonna get. And then it starts to shift and change. So for me, I grew up in a small town, two parents, two half sisters. So my two half sisters were 12 and seven years older than me. And they had a different father than I did. And he was kind of in and out of their lives when he felt like it. Uh, and sometimes I would remember before I was even verbal watching them in the living room, waiting for their, their dad, him not showing up and them crying. And I kind of took on, even though I had very loving parents that were completely devoted to me, I took on this fear of abandonment that if I wasn't perfect, if I wasn't unique enough, if I wasn't special enough, that I would somehow be exiled or abandoned like I was witnessing with my sisters. Uh, and so that's something that I didn't really fully get until much later in my adulthood, like the, the impact of that, because I didn't understand that even though that wasn't my experience of being abandoned, I took it on as my own experience. And so often that happens to us as children, where we take responsibility for what's ever going around in our home environment, as we're the ones that are to blame, because we don't have that differentiation of self yet. Uh, and so I think that's really critical for anyone who's researching, doing work, is to understand where does their motivation to achieve come from? And, and that's a big part of our emotional landscape. There's usually an emotional component to it. There's a psychological payoff that comes from early childhood. And so if you know what that is for yourself and you're able to integrate that, you can just move much more powerfully and, and in a way that resonates with people uh, and not act out or react out of blind spots that may exist from the past. So for me, figuring out those puzzle pieces, you know, it's like if you have a thousand piece puzzle that you're working on of yourself and your emotional intelligence, once I figured that out, it was like a big fat <laughs> piece of, of the puzzle for me. And so 
I encourage academics, and I've done a lot of work with faculty in emotional intelligence. And once they figure out, you know, some of those key traumas that led them to operate the way they do, then they can be more compassionate towards themselves and to their students. And, you know, there's just a huge ripple effect in so many different ways that ripple out when we put those puzzle pieces together. Wow, that's amazing. I want to jump a little ahead in your own journey and talk about the time when you were a rock journalist at the age of 16. Um, So I'm curious to know why you took that decision, whether your parents were supportive, and also how your experience was. Yeah, so I uh, I was one of those kids that was very conscientious, but I like to like push things to see how far I could take them. And so I remember the music stuff really started in the fifth grade for me. And so I decided to play the drums instead of the clarinet. And it led to like this three week fight with my dad because he wanted me to play a girl's instrument. Um, you know, it was just such a radically different time when I was growing up than it is now. Uh, and I just knew I needed to play the drums. And so I kind of learned early on that it's okay to, to fight, you know, for what you really believe in and what you want and that you'll still be loved. Um, and so, but when I was 16, I, I kind of knew like this, this is something they wouldn't approve of. <laughs> They really knew the the full extent of what I was doing. So it was a bit rebellious. And I I grew up in the small town, but we eventually moved to a larger town that was an hour and a half away from Minneapolis, Minnesota, where there's a club called First Avenue, which is the the biggest nightclub there. Um, And they had a magazine at the time called In-House Magazine. And so that was something that was circulated throughout the state of Minnesota. And I would get it Um, at the coffee shops that I frequented and that sort of thing. And I saw that they were looking for writers. And so I phoned up the editor uh, without telling her my age and set up an appointment to meet with her uh, and to go over this opportunity. And I'd never driven uh, on a highway before. (laughs) It was a very dangerous thing. Like this is the part of the interview of what not to do. Um, And now that I'm about to have my own child, I'm really freaked out about some of my decisions that I made as a kid, but I drove there, you know, the whole time, my hands shaking on the wheels and thinking about, oh my God, they're going to discover I'm young when I show up in person. And she was just extraordinary. And she offered me my own column and it was called Christie's Schoolhouse Rock. So I covered all the underage concerts and events for First Ave and I got a special pass. So I got to go to all the other concerts that I wanted to go to for free and was interviewing rock stars and musicians that were some of my heroes. Um, The first one being Steve Albini, who was a major record producer, electrical audio engineer. uh, And he's just someone that I really admired at the time, uh, who was really pushing the boundaries of the music industry. And he produced Nirvana and basically every other big indie rock name at that time. Uh, And so with that, I just wrote him. It wasn't an assignment for me. I just wrote him. I saw he was coming to town and he agreed to do the interview. And that was a critical first lesson for me. And, and just asking, you know, I wasn't qualified. And I think, you know, we're going to talk probably about imposter syndrome later. And so having those first initial experiences of just asking and people saying, yes, yes, you can have your own call. And yes, I'll do an interview with you. 
how much confidence that gave me. And when I would see Steve at other shows, you know, years later, he would say, hi, Christy, you know, and would remember the interview. And I just felt like, oh, I can, I can do something important just like he has, you know, it just gave me so much um, esteem and, and confidence in, in what was possible. That's amazing. Um, and that's an important lesson too, is sometimes all we got to do is ask. Right. Um, that's the first step taken, right? Yeah. Courage over confidence. Actually taking those action steps is what gives us confidence when it comes to imposter syndrome. So yeah, just having more and more of those experiences where you put yourself out there and it works out most of the time, right? There's going to be some times where people are unable to say no for a variety of reasons that oftentimes have nothing to do with you. But for the most part, the one of the huge benefits of being a student is that people really want to help um, younger generations. And so use that. Right. Um, we will talk more about, you know, imposter syndrome and other tips and advice that you have to offer a little later. But for now, I want to still talk about your journey. So how did your transition from being a rock journalist um, to actually doing your undergrad with, um, you know, staying with Aboriginal tribes in Australia? I had a lot of different jobs. Uh, I, I, I really liked working <laughs> as, as a young um, teenager. And, uh, you know, I did everything from debt collections and janitorial work to uh, working at First Ave and having that amazing experience and also writing obituaries for the local newspaper. And that was probably one of the most profound experiences because I was constantly put in touch with death and making the most of our lives while we have the opportunity to. Uh, and I love that so much that even later, much later when I went on to graduate school, I still wrote um, obituaries for that local newspaper. I sought them out and asked them if I could do it because I just loved it so much. But the the Aboriginal tribe thing is something that started when I was about five or six. Uh, I grew up in this town of 600 people, but I would go to the library all the time. And so the only thing I can really think of is that I was somehow exposed to Aboriginal tribes at that age. And I was just so fascinated. And that was my dream was to, to study Aboriginal tribes. And I had no idea how that would relate to a career. Uh, and I grew from grew up from a, a family that wasn't well off, you know, uh, financing my college education was something that I took really seriously. And so it just kind of the stars aligned. And at that time, the tuition in Australia was much, much lower than it was in the U.S. And so I did a financial analysis when I was 16 of all the institutions that my parents would want me to go to in Minnesota, which were probably preferably Catholic <laughs> in Minnesota or, you know, something like the University of Minnesota, of course. Um, but I just knew I, I had to go there. And so I was able to figure out these projections. And I was able to do my whole undergrad for about $10,000. Uh, the Australian system is under the British model. So instead of a four-year degree, it's a three-year degree. So that was a significant savings. And I also took as many college courses in high school that I could. So I had all these credits to transfer over. And so I presented it to them. They still really didn't want me to go. <laughs> And we're hoping over and over again that this is just a phase that I would get through. So this, this was over years of conversation. And eventually they realized she's not letting this go. This is her dream and we're going to support her in doing it. 
Um, and, and so I did go to Australia and I remember that first flight from LAX just sobbing because here's something I'd fought what felt like my whole life for, uh, and now it's really happening. And I had no idea what I was doing. And I remember landing and just feeling completely out of place. Uh, but my experience with the indigenous studies program, um, I was at James Cook University and they had this great program called Linking Indigenousness, where you would get to go live with different tribes and experience the culture. And also I worked with an archeologist on dating rock art. And, and so I got to spend time with the, a tribe up in the very, very Northern tip of Queensland. And those experiences just really made me feel like, oh, I have no idea where this is going, but this feels right to me. Um, and eventually I did a bunch of other things career-wise, but that was a pivotal experience for me in, in understanding other cultures. And then later on, I found out I had Anishinaabe ancestry like 10 years later. And, you know, this is something far back on my mom's side of the family. Uh, but my final paper in Australia, my final thesis was a comparison of the tribes I lived with in the Dakota and Anishinaabe of Minnesota. So that was really like a full circle moment when I put together some of those puzzle pieces. And I just feel like sometimes you have to choose between what makes sense on paper and maybe to someone's parents <laughs> and what your heart is really telling you over and over again, no, just go down this path. And that, even though I didn't continue, you know, being an anthropologist or going strictly down that path, it was something that opened up so many doors for me because I had such a unique experience and the maturity that came from being in a place completely removed from friends and family and having to figure things out really helped me. You mentioned that, that there were times when you did not know where you were heading, right? You were just following your passion, but oftentimes the question is what's next? What's after right. this? So how did you you know, overcome those moments? How did you realize what you wanted to do? One of my friends, one of my dear friends, Molly has this great expression that makes so much sense to me is life is like, and y'all are probably too young to remember this, but Michael Jackson had a music video way back in the day uh, for his hit, Billie Jean. And in that there's this dance floor and one square, you step on it. And then the next one lights up. And then the next one lights up after that. And I feel like Life for me has really been one square lighting up after another, combined with just this inner inner knowing that for me is really spiritual. And I know we don't really talk about spirituality a lot um, in scientific circles sometimes, but for me, there's you know it comes up in dreams where I or just different synchronicities where I can't ignore it. You know, it becomes so loud that I just I'm like, okay, finally I will. I will go this way, you know? Um, and so that, that was certainly the case when I started writing children's books, it was a series of dreams where I, I just, I was in my dream job, but I knew that I had to leave and, and start a publishing company. And it, it didn't make any logical sense whatsoever. But I think sometimes we just have to listen to those synchronicities that appear in our lives or through our own internal processing, if it's journaling, dreams, whatever. Um, and, you know, when we look at Nobel Prize winning scientists, a lot of them had their greatest discoveries 
when they were in these spaces of dreaming or going for a long walk and letting their imagination really take over. And I think that's something that we should encourage more of in the sciences is creating that kind of spaciousness to, to receive those messages or insights. That is very true. And I don't know if I've had those moments for myself, but I hear about them a lot as well. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so what were some of the key experiences that shaped your journey after undergrad? Yeah, so after undergrad, I went straight into my master's degree. Um, and one thing I don't really tell a lot of people is that it only took me a year and a half to finish my undergrad. So it was really quick. So I finished my master's degree in the same amount of time that it would have taken me to do my undergrad in a traditional four-year um, program. So I went straight into that and I studied reverse culture shock and what happens to people when they return home from study abroad experiences. Because when I came home, it was deer hunting season in Minnesota. And I had just had these incredible, you know, expansive experiences living with Aboriginal tribes and understanding just adulthood in a whole different way. And, and yeah, it, it was really strange for me to come back home especially to America where we have all of these different products, like just going to Target was kind of overwhelming for me. Uh, and right. so I realized that this is a psychological phenomenon that is very common and is actually more common than culture shock is. So going home from an extended experience like this is psychologically more difficult than it is going abroad. But yet all of the training and preparation is primarily put on the front end of those experiences. And so I became very curious about that. Uh, and then I started managing study abroad programs for uh, St. John's and St. Ben's in central Minnesota. Um, and we had 17 programs in 13 countries that were faculty led. And so I just loved these transformational experiences that would occur and watching people and helping, walk, helping them walk through this discovery of other and self, you know, which... I didn't understand at the time would be also part of my draw to emotional intelligence. Like there's that theme there. Uh, but if you want to really understand yourself in a completely different way, living in another culture for an extended period of time really flips the, the light switches on, so to speak, of your identity and understanding more about who you are and, and where you come from. Uh, and so that eventually led me to pursuing my PhD at the University of Minnesota um, and becoming student body president and getting very involved in student governance, both at the University of Minnesota and then also starting some national um, initiatives, including uh, student advocates for graduate education, which is still going and lobbies in DC and in state environments. Um, yeah, and, and so that cultural interest transferred into to an interest in leadership and how do we take these these dreams, these passions, um, the, the desire for justice, you know, all of these different things and manifest them into the world we want to co-create together. That's wonderful to hear. Um, and such an inspiring and very unique journey that you have. So I'm curious to know if you could go back in time and change anything about your journey, what would that be? I wouldn't change anything. <laughs> Because I can see for me, you know, like how even, even the most dramatic, um, heart-wrenching, awful situations were the best teachers. Uh, and I think we shy away from talking about 
those things. And, and, and for academics, it's so important that we understand our own journey and where we're getting our motivation so that we really can make the difference we want to see um, take place. And often it's our own internal obstacles and not understanding ourselves that block us from doing the incredible work that we could be doing. So yeah, I don't, I don't want to change anything. I just want to understand it better, you know? And I think that's part of our, our life process is just peeling layers and layers off of, of really getting deeper to understanding ourselves and others. Yes. Thank you for sharing that. So you are heavily involved in training the next generation of um, leaders and, you know, change agents. So could you talk a little bit about your involvement there? Yeah, I, I started teaching undergrads um, leadership and, you know, like personal development starting when I was 21. And I just, I remember the very first class that I taught, you know, these, these were students that were basically my age. (laughs) So it was a little strange and, you know, some of them much older, I had police officers and, you know, social workers in, in the very first class that I taught. And I just loved getting to know people and their life journeys. And it's similar to when I was working with obituaries. Like I just really thrived off of understanding someone else's story. And that was the same when I was a journalist. So I think, you know, putting together these threads that totally different experiences, but were leading to the same thing. And with my students, I saw, you know, like financially, a lot of them were taught you know, go to college and everything is going to work out fine from there, but they were taking out significant amounts of debt. And so I think, you know, like one of my students in particular, I remember who was going to be a school teacher already had $40,000 of debt. And this was, I mean, I hate to say it nearly 20 years ago. Um, and that was a lot of money, you know, and, and she hadn't even gotten through her degree yet. And so as someone who came from a financially conservative background, I developed a passion for let's, let's do your whole life plan. What does that look like? And, you know, in your dreams, this is the kind of house you want to have. How much is that going to be per month? You know, and just really breaking it down into tangible terms. And I think when it comes to so much of what I've seen now with my friends who went through graduate school and, and, and other things, the financial piece is so important and is often overlooked and how that can limit what's possible for you later on and where you are willing to live and all these other implications. And so I think that seed of, of starting there and seeing things that aren't working quite right in our educational system and, and trying to be an advocate for change in, in those ways, but also helping people realize, you know, their own internal worlds and, and what's possible, but also practical, like having both streams at once. Uh, and eventually I was at the University of Colorado in Colorado Springs, where I led the chancellor's leadership class. And we had 40 students that each received a $16,000 scholarship. Um, some of the more veterans and in my own personal journey, I, I've, uh, I became a yoga teacher and worked with veterans who had uh, traumatic brain injuries and other sorts of disabilities. And I was just so impressed by their ability to overcome time and time again, and to show up to the mat literally, even though they were under immense physical and emotional pain and trauma. Um, And so working with veteran students 
while I was at the University of Colorado was really a moving experience for me that transferred into just understanding when I was working with faculty or graduate students later on in my career, what's their story, you know? And once you know someone's story and who they really are and you feel that connection with them and that rapport, you can go so much further together than just this one way I'm going to instruct you on how to become a better leader or, you know, here's a concept that I'm teaching you and I have the wisdom and knowledge, you know, and you are, you are the receiver. And so I think that's something that was really empowering for me when I could teach in, in those ways and, and to have leadership programs that were designed in those ways that are more experiential, more about connecting to one another, because really, and we teach this uh, in the leadership minor at the University of Minnesota, relationships are the currency of power. And so when you're applying for a grant, when you're doing all these different things, if you have relationships built into those systems of power, you are far more likely to be successful going forward and achieving your dreams, you know, and, and that's really the heart of it. But this is all very interesting and, you know, very inspiring things. I, I think it's very important to be aware, both of your own personal story, as well as getting to know other people, establishing relationships, like you said. Yeah, this, this is all great stuff. Thank you for sharing all this. Okay, so I'm going to go into your advice in general for students. And I have three questions, um, you know, under this category. Sure. So we have a lot of science students listening to these interviews. And I think that one thing, one common challenge that all of us have is being able to communicate our research effectively. So do you have any advice for students regarding that? Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> One, um, and, and just as, you know, a bit of background, I founded the Speaking Science Conference series. And so we would train 500 faculty and graduate students at the University of Minnesota. Uh, and we did that for two years. And we had a bunch of other events that were associated with that, including improv for scientists and, and different things. And so if you've ever sat through a horrible presentation, Hold that in your heart and, and make a commitment never to do that to others. <laughs> you know, so only give a presentation you would want to sit through. And I think there is so much great training that's out there on what is evidence-based, effective ways of communicating science. And so you want to have an understanding of what those principles are and how do you design slides that will resonate with the way the receiver, the way their brains actually work, you know? So learning about different font styles and formatting and, you know, you don't want a billion words on the screen. People can't take that in. And unfortunately, a lot of what's modeled by, you know, people we look up to and, and who are amazing um, in a lot of other ways aren't always the best examples of science communication. You know, and so sometimes there's whole departments that are not following evidence-based ways of transferring their knowledge in their presentations or other forms of science communication. Um, and so the University of Florida, they have a center that does a lot of great work in this regard. Um, there's other places throughout uh, the United States, but I know I was part of helping start this uh, science communication trainers network that was 
funded by um, the Chan Zuckerberg Foundation and the Kavli Foundation uh, and a few others, um, where they're building a network of science communication trainers that help create evidence-based practices and trainings that people can tap into. So like AAAS uh, has its own science, science communications training. Basically, if you look into your field, there's probably some active science communication training components to the national conference that you can attend, um, look for opportunities through the graduate school when they come up, um, you know, and there's just so much to learn in this regard. And it doesn't seem as important when you're in your own department and the norms are kind of established as one way, but when you're out there applying for jobs and you want to set yourself apart from other candidates, holy moly, is it important, you know? And when you're presenting your research, when it finally all comes together and you're putting your thesis together and you're out there at national conferences, if you can have a stellar presentation that knocks people's socks off, that they will remember, that could be the thing that determines whether you will get a job or not, right? Right. And so I would really put more emphasis on, on science communication. Now, people can also take it a bit far and, you know, there's so many different social media platforms and it can really tie into imposter syndrome of never feeling like you're doing enough. Like you have to have an active LinkedIn, a Twitter and on and on and on. Pick one platform that you most resonate with um, that works best for you and, and try to put your focus into that instead of 20 different things. Um, another thing I would recommend is having your own website. I don't have mine published right now just because I'm pregnant and I'm not taking on more engagement. So there's also periods in life where you want to take a sabbatical, take some time off, um, recalibrate, you know, before you go out there. I think that's another thing. Uh, I really recommend the book Deep Work by Cal Newport. And he talks about different researchers and scientists and their methods. And there's some people like Donald Knuth, um, who's out of California an incredible data scientist. Uh, he doesn't take any form of email. You have to write to him um, and his secretary will go through the mail. And then once a semester, we'll decide whether it's worthy of correspondence or not. So like everybody has their own bandwidth and capacity for these different modes of communication. Find out what works for you and try to stick to that. And you'll get a lot of noise about, oh, you should be doing this. You should be doing that. But if it's too much. And if it's taking away from your research, you want to examine its usefulness. And these things are highly addictive, right? And so we want to protect our own brains, our own autonomy and ability to, to do the important research that we're working on and not getting too sucked into those online worlds. It's so important. Get training <laughs> wherever you can. And when you find people that are doing things that you really admire, take stock. And even having a little folder in your inbox of other people's presentations that you really admired so that when you are going back to creating your own presentation, you're like, oh, I really like the way they showed the data in this way. And continuously trying those things out throughout graduate school so that you're not cramming this in when you're about to attempt the job search. Right. Thank you so much for sharing all those tips. Um, and they all really apply to me. So I'm sure they apply to all the other students and professionals listening as well. Um, another common challenge that we talked about earlier was imposter syndrome. 
so could you share a few more tips on you know dealing with imposter syndrome and how do you keep yourself motivated in those times yeah so i've been tangentially interested in imposter syndrome for a long time but when i became intensely interested was i i was director of graduate and faculty leadership programs and i had about two dozen faculty um, in this two-year leadership program and was starting to collect emotional intelligence data and saw that self-regard was by far the most common lowest score. Um, And so we really started talking about imposter syndrome. And more recently, uh, you know, there's been some conversations about how valid is imposter syndrome, uh, just from the perspective of maybe we expect people to be doing too much to begin with. And we should look at those systems first before we start saying we're imposters. Um, you know, so th- there's a lot of levels of this, this conversation uh, that are evolving, but I will say that for those that it resonates with them, that they have imposter syndrome uh, for my faculty, I was learning, you know, they just had so many different accomplishments that they had to fight for and kind of like claw their way towards you know, so you make it through your undergrad and then your master's degree, your PhD, and then you have to go for tenure. And it's just like this never ending series of you're worthy or not worthy and just all this pressure. And so one of my favorite quotes on this is from Joseph Campbell. And he said, PhDs are the most insecure people on the planet because they're constantly seeking the approval of others. It's just that culture of you're never doing enough you know, you, you need more awards, you need more published articles. And, you know, it's just, it feels like it's never ending that you're on this hamster wheel that you can't get off. And so a lot of people develop like an inner critic, you know, that is speaking to them in their heads that they're not doing enough, they're not good enough and all these other things. And so we brought in in an expert who actually is in the Twin Cities area, Heather Wepley. And she had this great advice of name your inner inner critic. Um, And so in the first training we did on this, uh, we decided with the name Frank <laughs> out of a joke, um, come up with your own name for your own inner critic. And anytime they pipe up, you know, just be like enough, Frank, you know, I've heard enough. I'm moving on. Um, and as I said before, actually taking action is what builds confidence. And a lot of times we have, you know, just this rumination of, oh, should I do this or not? And we just, you know, beat ourselves up and end up not doing anything because we don't know what to do. But even taking baby steps and and small actions can really help boost our confidence. Um, One of my favorite tips is to have a folder in your inbox. I just have like a smiley face of good things. So if you've had a day that's kind of deflated you, you can go back to that that inbox. It could be something someone sent you that was nice. It could be a funny cartoon that someone sent you, whatever it is, having that in there and just kind of going through it. And then there's just things like, are you getting enough sleep? Have you spent any time in nature lately? Um, Are you getting enough physical activity? Like just these normal things that can really help us tune into our true nature and fend off the imposter syndrome monsters that tend to creep in. These are all amazing tips. Thank you so much for sharing them. Uh, The inbox one, I, I do that as well. And I can second that. I can say that it really works because it really helps to go back to those nice emails. And it's just like a booster to your confidence because you know you did those things and people emailed nice things to you about it. You know? Yeah. We often assess ourselves as being much worse than we actually are. 
So just asking, am I being fair to myself? And would I treat another person this way? Probably not. That's true. Put things in a better perspective as well. So my last question, and you know, this was a very interesting conversation and I have to thank you for that. There's a lot more that I want to ask, but I just realized that we're almost at the end of our time. So based on all of your experiences so far, is there anything else that you would like to share with students and or professionals as they, you know, go out on their journeys? Any advice or thoughts, anything else that you want to share with them? Yeah, I just think we're living in a time that seems so volatile and and challenging, Uh, but it's kind of been this way throughout human history, right? Like, There's been a lot of trials and tribulation um, and things to overcome. It's just, everything's kind of accelerated now. And so going back to that that piece of when you need to take a time out, do that for yourself. And and self-care is so critically important to good science, to maintaining our ability to, you know, do the things that we want to achieve, the things that we want to share with the world. Like if, if you have problems taking care of yourself for whatever reason, think about the impact you can have on others and how that diminishes when we don't take care of ourselves. And I'm just very concerned about social media, especially with folks your age and, and younger, the impact that it has on self-esteem and motivation. And there's just so much research out here that that shows what a detrimental impact that can have. And so if you need to take a break from social media, take a break from social media, you know, and recalibrate and find what really is helpful to me and what's hurting me. Um, And so there's something called the craftsman approach where if it's a tool that really helps more than it hurts, use it. But if it's hurting more than it helps, stop it. And so I know for me, that's been important is just take a step back to really go back into the next phase of, of what's important um, because I'm at one of those uh, junctures in life now where I'm about to have a baby, there's going to be a lot of different life changes. And so I want to be able to tune in to, to what is the right next step. And sometimes that means really clearing as much as you can from your to-do list, the amount of meetings that you're taking. And so it's not always about saying yes to every opportunity that makes sense or every tool that could be potentially useful. You wanna figure out is helping more or not? And, and do I want to integrate this into my life? And so that, that I think is the challenge that most of us face today is just trying to do so much um, and trying to expand our bandwidth. And I think sometimes we can do so much more if we limit what we're trying to achieve to, you know, a very discreet amount of things. Thank you so much for sharing that. Finally, um, if folks are interested in learning more about emotional intelligence and, uh, you know, so forth, do you have recommendations on where they can go to do that? Yeah. I mean, YouTube is phenomenal. Um, and John Kabat-Zinn, if, if people are into meditation and emotional intelligence, he's done a lot of great work um, with mindfulness and emotional intelligence um, and bringing that into school systems and just a variety of different arenas. So John Kabat-Zinn, Daniel Goleman is the one that really popularized emotional intelligence. He was a writer for the New York Times and then eventually wrote a bunch of books on emotional intelligence that are very accessible. Um, There's also a book uh, called A Thousand Brains by Jeff Hawkins, um, which is a new theory of intelligence. And I think 
He's kind of on the cutting edge uh, of how our brains work from a neuroscientific perspective and, and emotional intelligence. And then Lisa Feldman Barrett wrote How Emotions Are Made, The Secret Life of the Brain. And that's another great neuroscientific perspective because sometimes it can come off as a little bit like wishy-washy, like, oh, emotional intelligence. And we're all going to like, you know, meditate and like, you know, bliss out and then come to some realization together. For scientists, you know, who might have a built up barrier to that, those two resources, A Thousand Brains and How Emotions Are Made, are, I think, the, the best recommendations in terms of books to read on it. Perfect. Thank you so much for sharing everything. And this was a very interesting conversation and chat with you. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for your time. And it was great having you and seeing you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And uh, I hope everyone who's watching has a wonderful day wherever they're at. And uh, thanks for including me in the conversation. Thank you so much. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Hope you had fun listening. Please stay tuned for the next one and do give me a rating on Spotify and Apple Podcasts.